Well, uh, let me invite you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. We ended up at uh, verse 11 uh, last uh, time we looked at Hosea, I guess last week. And um, in the Hebrew Bible, the break in the chapter is a little bit different. So our English Bibles uh, go through verse 12. So the, the 11th chapter has 12 verses. But in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the 12th verse of the 11th chapter is actually the first verse of the 12th chapter. Is that confusing enough? Okay. <laughs> so we will pick up any, at any rate. We're going to start in, in uh, Hosea 11 verse 12, and we'll read through the end of chapter 12 this evening. <clears throat> this is God's word. Uh, let's give attention to it now. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. If in Gilgal they sacrifice bulls, their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to, er to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. And by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we come again to confess that we have no benefit from your word apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. Move in us in a deep way. Uh, provoke us to repentance where needed, to hope, and to faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We all, uh, there are 14 chapters in Hosea's uh, uh, prophecy, and so we are in the 12th chapter now. 
And we're coming to the concluding arguments, as it were, in chapters 12 and 13. Now, so buckle up and get ready because these are hard words again. The Lord has given us some some reason for hope in the 11th chapter. He reminded us, remember we took the look at the past when God took Israel as a child and He took him in His hands and taught him how to walk and, and demonstrated His love to His people uh, throughout their lives. <clears throat> well, here He begins to refer to them again and there are a couple of concluding arguments indicting them again, reminding them of His punishment toward them or His discipline. But then, in chapter 14, we will end on a high note. And so we have that to look forward to. But let's give some attention here. We'll notice uh, four things about uh, this particular chapter. Um, And what God is showing His people, in essence, is that even though He has bestowed on them some very great blessings, what they have done, especially the northern kingdom, they have traded confidence in God for confidence in men. They are going their own way. They have disregarded Him. Even though they have all of the outward trappings of religion, they've abandoned confidence in God for confidence in men. So let's notice then, first of all, that God does not ignore sin. This is an interesting uh, way that uh, Hosea brings out this prophecy in verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Let, let's think just for a second about what, what's going on there. Well, in essence, what's happening in what, what you might consider a preface is that uh, Hosea is bringing out two brothers. The first brother is Ephraim. And remember, we've talked about this. Ephraim was the youngest son of Joseph. Judah was the fourth son um, of Jacob by Leah. So there's a comparison here that's going on between Leah and Rachel. Remember, Joseph was the firstborn son to Rachel. Why was Rachel important? Well, because Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved. Now, Leah was the wife uh, that his father-in-law gave to him in in a deceptive way but she happened to bear him children. Well, what happened when Judah was born? Leah finally said, his name shall be Judah. Why? Because God has given me a son. It was with Judah that she began to hope in God. And Judah became the promised son. Remember, Jacob prophesied over him saying, the scepter will not depart out of Judah. So there was a promise to this son. He arose amongst his brothers as the the promised son. In fact, uh, when you read the end of Genesis, uh, the the last part of it in, in the Joseph cycle from 36 to 50, there's this weird chapter that occurs in verse in chapter 37. You remember that we've talked about Joseph and his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt and then you turn the page from chapter 30 from chapter 36 and you go to chapter 37 And all of a sudden, it starts to tell you about uh, Judah and how he had a child by his would-be daughter-in-law. You remember that? And it's the one that concludes, she has more honor than I, all all, all of this. Well, what's significant about that is what he had given to this girl, a, a signet ring. 
and, and his staff. It's all emblems of kingship. So here Hosea is, to, is comparing uh, Ephraim, who was the youngest son, blessed by Jacob, who came from Joseph, and who arose amongst his brothers in the northern kingdom, and Judah. Why would he do this? Well, this has been the pattern. Cain and Abel. Uh, Ham and Shem. Jacob and Esau. Well, here we have two brothers again who are set over against each other, and, and different paths are chosen by them. One has surrounded God with lies, and the other is walking with God. And so there's just a comment, comment there at this point in history that Ephraim, they had all wicked kings, every single one of them, Omri and, uh, and Ahab and on and on. They were all wicked men. But the kings in Judah, many of them walked with God and were faithful. But he reminds us here that God does not ignore sins. And so as he's addressing the two brothers and pointing out uh, the northern kingdom, we come and we notice several things about the sins of the northern kingdom, the elder brother of the northern kingdom. They are pursuing a life of vanity. Look at what we read in verse 1 of chapter 12. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. You can think about if you've stood outside ever on a windy day and you open your mouth and your, your mouth will fill with wind and you close your mouth around it and there's nothing there. There's nothing to feed on. Remember, this is the picture that Solomon, when he's writing Ecclesiastes, what is the picture of leading a vain life? Well, it's chasing after the wind. You know, as a boy, maybe going out in your yard on a windy day and trying to catch the wind. You, you can't do it. This is the picture of a vain life. Well, how are they leading a vain life, chasing after the wind? He gives us some illustration. First of all, they are practicing deceit. They are a lying <clears throat> people. In verse 12, again, they said that uh, God said that they had surrounded him with lies. What's the picture of being surrounded by lies? Why would we have that picture? Well, remember that God in the camp, in his tabernacle, the people would camp around that tabernacle. Well, now he is not surrounded by a holy people seeking to honor him. He is surrounded by lies. So they are practicing vanity by lying, being a lying people. Notice in chapter 12, verse 7, an illustration of this. He is a merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. Here's the picture. He's going out into the marketplace and he is using one weight for one person and a different weight for another person. And he's defrauding people. This is the picture of Israel's deceit. He is a man of deception and fraud. But notice again what he's doing uh, in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1. He multiplies falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Now, what's happening uh, in the kingdom at this point is they are beginning, they are in decline, and their enemies are gathering around them. And so uh, Assyria has grown strong in power by God's providence because he's going to use them to discipline his people. And Israel notices this. So what do they do? They strike out and they make a covenant with Assyria. But Assyria is strong. 
So you, if, you're, if you're pragmatic, you, you need to make some assurances that when you covenant with Assyria, if they come against you, you've got some backup. So you're going to also send oil to Egypt so that you can play the two against each other if you want. Uh, this is simply the picture that they are trusting in their own wisdom rather than appealing to God for their defense. We find in verse 8 that they are full of pride. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Well, how has he become rich? Because falsehood. He's a lying man. He's gotten rich through falsehood. And now he's beating his own breast saying, Look how wealthy I have become. Look at my success. Lastly, in verse 14, he commits idolatry. Ephraim has given bitter provocation. How has he given provocation? Because he worships the Baals. So these are the sins of Ephraim. He needs to be reminded here, God is chastising him. I have a catalog of your sins. And you are to be indicted for them. But you can kind of picture, can't you, a, a, a child who is being, uh, whose, whose sins are being recounted to him. What's his response? Oh, but what about the other child? It's not just me. And so we read this comment as well in verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. And so what we learn from this part is that God is keeping a record of their sins. They cannot take this for granted. This is what's happening in the kingdom. And this comes forward into the time of Christ's days and His incarnation. That They think, well, we are a special people. And because we are a special people, because God has set His blessing upon us, He has put His name upon us, He's given us every advantage according to Romans chapter 3, we are okay. But what's happening is they are not loving the Lord by pursuing a holy life. And God reminds them that He does not ignore sin. And we need this reminder too. Not that we are under any kind of threat, but when God forgives us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is to be an encouragement to pursue holiness. Not a reason to to become lazy and disregard it. Secondly, we learn that God's kindness to us makes our sin worse. Notice what happens here in verses 3 to 5, and then we'll look at verse 12. In the womb, he's talking about Jacob here. He took his brother by the heel. heel. So we remember how Jacob was born. Remember that uh, he, he broke through. Uh, there were two, two children uh, striving together in, uh, in the womb there of Rebekah. And it was uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first and then Jacob. They were striving with one another and he came out gripping his brother's heel. The whole life of Jacob was one of deception and pragmatism. And, and remember, trying to obtain God's blessing by his own wisdom. And what happens? 
Well, in verse 4, he strove with the angel and prevailed. We remember there he is he's waiting. Remember, he had sent his whole family across the river. He, he knew that Esau was coming to meet him. And he was waiting alone. And there an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And Jacob wrestled with that angel. And the angel touched his hip and brought it out of socket and Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Well, what happened? The angel did bless him, changing his name to Israel. We read also of the other blessing of God. He met God at Bethel. Remember that as he was on his way to, to meet Laban, his uncle, he laid down there in the wilderness and he rested his head upon a rock. And as he dreamed, remember what he saw? He saw a ladder going up into heaven, or probably more likely a temple, a stepped temple, going up into the heavens, and the angels descending and ascending upon it, which was a representation of Christ. So here, consider this, in the life of Jacob, both in wrestling with the angel of the Lord and in the image of the latter, he had two glorious encounters with the pre-incarnate Christ. And God blessed him. God spoke with him. God gave him the memorial name, Yahweh. And what is the point that's being made here? Well, that God has blessed Jacob in a special way. He's saying, look, Israel, here's your father. Think of this. Even these thousand years later, remember the blessings that have been poured out upon you as a people. Not because there's anything great in you. Remember that God gave these things to Jacob even when he was a striver, one who was deceitful. God met him and was gracious to him as your father. And why did he give your father these blessings? Well, so that he would pass them on to you. He's given you all of these blessings, all of these special privileges in him. The memorial name has been given to you. Not only that, we learn in verses 12 to 13 that God made them a people. God, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. He served for a wife. He took him, what was he? Just a mere shepherd. Nothing special. And by a prophet, that is Moses, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. God made them a people, giving them every advantage. And what do we learn from this? Well, God is showing that His sins, Israel's sins against Him, become all the more aggravated because they are done in the light of all of this grace. Consider how often God has been gracious to you. He has permitted you to hear the Gospel. Some of you were born into families where your mother or your father taught you the gospel. Some of you had a Sunday school teacher or maybe a school teacher who pulled you aside occasionally and reminded you to live for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you ought to remember those things in light of the fact that some children are bereft of those privileges according to the providence of God. You can think about times when God has answered your prayers for provision. You saw yourself as destitute. And you reached out to the Lord. You cried out to Him. And He provided for you. And you took notice of it. 
Or maybe you've prayed for other people. And maybe you've known friends who were sick and they recovered according to God's grace. And he answered your prayer. And he did that to strengthen and bolster your faith. And think about how every day he protects you from the wiles of the devil. Think about what Satan could do to you if God did not protect you. But he does. And yet, how often do we become lazy in godliness and sin? And those sins that you and I now commit are done against all of these kindnesses of God. He is pointing this out to Israel, telling him that his sins are worse, they are more grievous. It is different for an Israelite to sin than it is for an Assyrian. And we remember that a worse judgment awaits those who grow up in the church and then depart from the faith. God is teaching us this lesson here. He gives us these privileges and you are to look to them as a way to strengthen your spirit against sin. Think of all that God has done. Preach to your soul of all that God has done for you. Will you sin against Him? And this should be a strength for us against sin. Thirdly, we think not only that God keeps a record of sin, He he notices our sins, that His kindnesses toward us aggravate sin, but also that He is faithful to discipline sin. Notice in verse 9 what he says there. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Now, I would suggest to you that this is another kindness of the Lord. He doesn't do this for every people. Well, what is he doing? Well, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, they went into the wilderness. And there they constructed tents to dwell in. In fact, they had an entire festival devoted to remembering when they dwelt in tents. It was called the Festival of Booths, to remember that there was a time when they dwelt in tents. Well, when did they celebrate that? Well, when they got into towns, and they built houses, and they had paneled houses. Remember, David said, I have a paneled house, and the Lord is living in a tent still. Well, God says, I'm going to take you out of your paneled houses where you rest secure in your own security. You're making covenants with foreign peoples rather than looking to the Lord your God, and I'm going to put you back in the wilderness. I would suggest to you that this is a kindness. God does not work in every life to humble every man. Remember, some men God leaves in sin. He says, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you over to your sins. But He does not do this to His people. He says, so that you may return to Me. I'm going to put you back in the tents. I'm going to humble your hearts. And this is a kindness from God to remove the blessing and to bring upon them the curse. He is demonstrating in this way His true love for them. As His people, 
He's condescending to them even in this way by disciplining them, by allowing them in this life to feel the pain of sin is a kindness for the Lord because some men God leaves in the pleasure of sin so that they may experience the pain of sin in the life to come. But He doesn't do that for His people. He is a faithful Father. And in this way, He further shows His kindness to His people. Fourthly, lastly, like like the kernel or the seed in the midst of the flower, God gives us a call for hope. Notice verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. The last thing that we notice is that God is faithful to offer mercy. As you read the Minor Prophets, and I hope you do, they can be difficult. Sometimes the places, the cities, are not easy to identify. Look them up. Become familiar with them. They contain hard words, and we've talked about this. There are three primary messages that God gives in the prophets. He says, you are sinful people. You've sinned against me in grievous ways. That's number one. Number two. I'm going to discipline you for your sins. And then thirdly, he's always faithful in every single prophet to offer this as well. But I want you to hope because I won't leave you in your sins. Notice here in verse 6 that he offers the same thing. Here's the plea. Return. I'm not disciplining you, in other words, just so that I can take some sort of pleasure in your pain. This is the words of a father to a child. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, God is saying to His people, my beloved Israel, my Samaritan people, I'm applying the rod of discipline to you because I am a loving and a kind and a patient Father. I want you to return to me. Notice that there are three pleas here. Number one, in verse six, return. Turn to me. One of my favorite passages in the book of Joel, I've shared this with you, it comes to us in Joel chapter two. Why don't you turn over there and let's look at it together. It's right after Hosea. Just turn a couple of pages. Look at uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 12. You might be familiar with chapter 2 because this is also the chapter uh, where the promise that your your young men will dream dreams, your old men will have visions that Peter quotes in Acts. Yet even now, this is Joel 2, 12. Yet even now. Now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. And skip down now to verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. God 
every time He disciplines you in your sin, is extending this mercy to you. My child, return to me. Well, what is He asking you to return to? Well, He tells you, if you go back to Hosea chapter 12, by the help of your God, return to your God. Not just return to good behavior. Not just to put, he's not calling on Israel just to put lying and deceit out of their mouths. He's not just telling them to, to put away their idols. Don't just crush your idols. Don't just grind them up. Come back to me. Come back to worship. Restore the love of your heart to me. Set your mind upon me. This is repentance. Secondly, in His offer of mercy, He's calling them to hold fast to love and to mercy. Notice what He says, hold fast to love and to justice. Now in some sense, uh, we might translate this Hebrew term mercy and justice. Um, So these are sort of the poles, aren't they? Uh, in, in Psalm 101, we, will, we read in verse 1, I will glorify the Lord for His mercy and His justice. And these serve as, as bookends of God's attributes from mercy to His justice. And so God calls us as His people to have an equal commitment both to love and to justice. Now, I think we tend to make a couple of errors with reference to these things. The first error is that we define love and justice in our own terms. You'll say, well, I know what love is. I feel love for certain people, and I don't feel love for other people. I think I have a natural instinct for showing love. I think I have a natural instinct for what justice is. And so I know how to, to show these. But God is calling you to look to His Word how many parents would say, well, I show love to my children by letting them do what they want. Well, this is a false show of love. How many parents would say, well, I show justice to my children because I'm harsh toward them. Well, this is a false justice. And so it's important that we look to the Lord to see how He practices love, how He practices justice so that we might cling to them. And then thirdly, lastly there, um, there were two errors. Let me go back to the second one. We defined these without um, referring to Scripture. And then the second error is that we practice one and ignore the other. And then look what he, He calls upon them to do thirdly. Wait continually upon your God. There's an interesting moment in Nehemiah's life. They'd been given permission to go back to Israel. Cyrus was setting them free. And so the Persians were giving them liberty to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. And Nehemiah had all these children women and children with him along with the men. And he thought to himself, we're going to go over some treacherous ground here. There may be rogue soldiers. There may be thieves. There may be wild beasts. All kinds of of dangers for the people of God. 
Maybe I should appeal to the Persians to let some soldiers go with us. But Nehemiah's heart was convicted. You see, all that time that they had been living in exile, do you know what they'd been saying? We're the people of God. Our God is with us. Our God is going to restore us. Do you know what God is going to do for us based on the prophets? He's going to bring back a Davidic king. We're going to ride on the heights of the land. You know what? Let, it, let me tell you about that moment when God uh, defended His people um, without even using swords or clubs. And Nehemiah was checked in his conscience and he said, you know, how can I have expressed all this confidence in the Lord and now appeal to the Persians for soldiers? And so he prayed. He said, Lord, strengthen my hands. Help me to go forward trusting in you. And he did. And God brought them safely home. This is what it means to wait continually upon the Lord your God. Everything that Israel faced, every test, every enemy that rose up against them, every people that came to them saying, let's enter into an unholy covenant, all of those were tests ordained by God. How did Israel fail? By trusting in their own wisdom rather than looking to the Lord their God. They became a purely pragmatic people. We think all the way back to, uh, uh, to Jeroboam. You remember why he set up the false gods? Because he knew that if the people went back to Jerusalem, their hearts would return to David. God, here in Hosea, as we close out these last two pieces, and in chapter 14, he is reminding us. He's reminding us that he's not, a, he's not a lenient God from the perspective that he doesn't mark sins. But he is a merciful God who is pleased for everyone who turns to him in sincere repentance and faith to take your sins and punish them in the Lord Jesus Christ instead. But you, he calls upon you to exhibit true godliness by loving mercy and justice, by walking with the Lord your God and waiting upon him, obeying him in all things. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for these words of wisdom and we ask that you would help us. Lord, we, some of us are like Israel and Judah. We have grown up in the church. Probably most of us have. We've grown up hearing the promises that you have made from the pulpit. We've grown up seeing people be baptized. We've grown up singing the songs of Zion our whole lives. And you've shown us so many kindnesses. Lord, disciplining us in our sin, not allowing us to take pleasure in sin. And Father, we ask that you would continue to hold us in your mighty grip. As our dear Father in the faith wrote, prone to wander. Lord, 
I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, this is true of us. So as we come and consider these words tonight, we acknowledge we don't have anything apart from you. Even our faithfulness is from you. Lord, keep us in the midst of the tests that you assign. Tests of health, tests of well-being, temptations to sin, temptations not to trust you, temptations to exchange obedience to you for what feels right in the moment. Please, Lord, keep us from these things. We ask in Christ's name and for His honor. Amen.